Hi, this is Anthony Ryan, author of The Waking Fire, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings podcast. Today's guest is the New York Times best-selling author of the Raven's Shadow Trilogy, including Bloodsong, Tower Lord, and Queen of Fire, as well as the cyberpunk noir series titled Slab City Blues. He currently resides in London, though he hails from Scotland. He has a degree in history and continues on an endless pursuit for a perfect pint of ale. His latest novel, The Waking Fire, book one of the Draconis Memoria, dropped July 5th and is available now on Amazon. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Anthony Ryan back to the show. Hello, uh, thanks for having me back. Okay, Anthony, so we talked to you uh, last year about your rise to publishing success and even gave a short preview of The Waking Fire the last time that you were on, so folks can check out the show notes for a link to your last appearance on the show. But today we are going to talk about The Waking Fire and even dive into uh, how Anthony goes about creating characters as well. So a lot of things to cover in our short time together today. But again, Anthony, great to have you back on the show. And you must still be riding that wave of success after the first time that you were on the show. Um, well, it all seems to be going well, you know, nothing to complain about. <laughs> well, let's dive in and talk about The Waking Fire. Pretty damn solid reviews so far for the book. Mark Lawrence even reviewed the book and called you an annoyingly good writer. So if you could, Anthony, tell us about The Waking Fire and what readers can expect from this new steampunk-flavored epic fantasy universe you've created. Um, well, it's a secondary world fantasy, but instead of... Uh, swords and so on. Uh, this time people are fighting with guns and cannons and steamships and uh, they're at no, sort of mid-19th century level of development. Uh, but it's a world where magic exists and dragons exist. Uh, I called them drakes in the book uh, instead of dragons because it just scans better. But the magic works basically by a select number, a small number of people. One in every thousand people in the population has the ability to drink dragon blood and use it to manifest uh, magical powers. And they're called the blood blessed. The world is sort of riven with conflicting factions, uh, it's a split between uh, an imperial, sort of decadent old imperial power, the Corventine Empire, and uh, the corporate world, which is dominated by uh, the Iron Ship uh, Trading Syndicate. The Corventine Empire is like the, um, the last remaining sovereign state in the world, and everything else is run by corporations. And they're about to embark on a war that will decide who gets to control the uh, the flow of dragon blood, which is you know the most important substance in the world. But events are about to overtake them. Very cool. Well, we've been uh, checking out the book, and it's very awesome so far. The story itself is told through three point-of-view characters. If you could, Anthony, give us a little snippet of each of these three characters and what readers can expect from their journeys in this first book. The first one we meet is Lizanne Lethridge, who's a, what I call an exceptional initiatives agent. She's basically a spy slash assassin slash corporate espionage thief. Uh, she's employed by the Iron, Iron Ship uh, Trading Syndicate, uh, basically to steal things and from their competitors and occasionally assassinate people who are inconvenient. She's a complex character who initially appears to have no not much of a moral compass at all, but as the story develops, uh, she, be, I hope, becomes a lot more uh, complicated and uh, morally conflicted. Uh, there's also uh, Clayton Torcreek, who's basically a crook 
when we first meet him, he's uh, fixed a uh, bare knuckle fist fight because he's secretly a blood blast himself. He's unregistered though. In this world, all the blood blasts uh, have to be registered so everybody knows who they are. And he's unregistered, it may automatically makes him a criminal. It also gives him a lot of freedom. And he uses it basically to uh, steal things. Uh, he's just fixed this fist fight, which has got him into very deep waters with the uh, local bigwig in the uh, town where he lives, uh, the criminal town where he lives. And he's uh, about to embark on a very perilous journey as a result. The third character is uh, Lieutenant Heilmore, who's a member of the what I call the Maritime Protectorate. The Iron Ship Trading Syndicate has like its own private army and navy, uh, which is something I took from history when uh, from the East India Company, which you know was a, a real company that ran most of India for most of the 19th century and also had its own uh, army and navy. Uh, and Heilmore is an officer in the, in the naval part of the Protectorate, and uh, it's through his eyes we get to see a lot of the uh, the unfolding war and uh, sea battles and so on. He's kind of a direct descendant of uh, military adventure heroes like uh, Bernard Cornwall Sharp or C.S. Forrester's Hornblower. Last time you were on the show, um, you talked about the blood-blessed ships, mm -hmm. essentially, powered by blood. So this third character, you, you mentioned that the, most of the story, his story takes place on one of these uh, spectacularly awesome <laughs> blood-drinking <laughs> ships. Well, I called them uh, blood burners. Not every ship is a blood burner. Some of them are just standard steamships because there's so few blood blessed around. But some of the uh, warships and merchant ships, the, you know, the, the more prestige ones, have these blood burning engines which need a blood blessed to uh, to power them. In Heilmore's case, uh, he's not actually blood blessed, but they have a civilian on board the ship who's required to power the engine. Uh, and in Heilmore's case, the, he's in charge of the blood blessed, and he. This guy is basically a drunk and a wasteful, and it's Heilmore's job to whip him into shape and uh, make sure he does his job. So I imagine the Blood Blast, uh, they're all sorts of different characters. You, for example, you have the unregistered Blood Blast, or you have Blood Blast that are, have good intentions, and then some that are maybe uh, not as nice. Um, what makes the Blood Blast characters different? Uh, do, do, they, do some of them drink certain kinds of blood, and what kind of different powers do they get from the, uh, the blood that they drink? I took the view that the blessing is entirely random. Uh, if your parents are blood-blessed, you, you are not blood-blessed, uh, well, unless, unless by accident. It's just uh, it's like a recessive gene that only uh, occurs in one in a thousand of the population by pure chance. So it could potentially be anybody, and it could be good or evil or somewhere in the middle. Some of them, they can all use the powers of uh, in Drake blood. Uh, the different powers depends on which type of Drake blood that you're drinking. If it's uh, green blood, you become super fast and super strong. Uh, if it's uh, red blood, then you can, you know, it's pyrokinesis. You can create uh, fire out of thin air. Uh, black blood makes you uh, telekinetic and uh, blue blood makes you telepathic. Some of the blood blessed have a better facility with certain types of blood than others. Uh, Clay, uh, the, one of the main characters, he's particularly good with black, so he's very good with uh, telekinesis. Lizanne is, is kind of unique because she's equally good with all different types of uh, blood. 
So it must have been a varied amount of research that went into this series versus the Raven's Shadow trilogy, uh, essentially, uh, probably because of the technology shift from, um, you know, medieval weapons to the more uh, industrial era weapons and, and technology. Tell us a little bit about the research that went into putting this uh, story together. I read up on various things, like uh, the East India Company was one for obvious reasons. Uh, also, in terms of technology, I mean, I didn't, I couldn't describe in detail the working of a steam engine, but I have a basic understanding of how it works. Also, I read up a lot about uh, paddle steamers and, you know, paddle steamer warships, which were used in the American Civil War and in in a few other places. So there was quite a lot of real history to draw on. Uh, Also, the Franco-Prussian War, I I mined that for quite a lot of uh, useful stuff as well. But of course, because it's fantasy, if I run up against something... Uh, an in- inconvenient in terms of technology. I can just make it up, uh, which, which I will do if I have to. You actually uh, went on Mark Turner's blog, a uh, past guest, and he had his book, The Dragon Hunters. So you have kind of have that in common, the the, the uh, Drake Dragon uh, connection, so to speak. Uh, you you mentioned that in The Waking Fire that there's more cursing and. Uh, I thought that was interesting because we're big fans of cursing. All sorts of words. Yeah. yeah they're, yes, they're uh, effing and jeffing all over the place. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, well, some of the characters swear and some don't. I mean, Heilmore never swears because uh, he considers himself above that. Uh, but Clay, uh, and because Clay's part of this uh, crew of uh, contractors, I call them. They're basically like the buffalo hunters from the Old West. And they go out and hunt dragons for their blood, basically. And they have a pretty rough crew, and they, they, they swear all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting uh, how the, the characters, even in the opening scene, you can see the distinct difference between the way the characters talk. Now, I think that's an interesting thing that some writers kind of experiment with is uh, distinguishing characters by the way they they use dialogue. So, you know, the rougher characters may talk with more cursing, uh, which me and Rob are pretty rough characters ourselves. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the more educated may or the more highborn characters talk in a higher vocabulary. Was that something you consciously thought about when you were creating this kind of uh, new world where you you had to focus less on the medieval-style dialogue and more modern style? Yeah, they they have a class structure which is roughly similar to the class structure of, you know, 19th century Europe and uh, North America. A lot of the action takes place in what's basically a colonial dominion. Um, And it's it's a frontier society where... People will talk differently than people who live in cities, you know, on the mainland, you know. So it was a way of distinguishing characters and distinguishing where they, who they are and where they come from. Because it and also it'd be really boring if everyone's talking the same. <laughs> and they're speaking in a more modern idiom, you know, in the Raven Shadows series, people were speaking in, you know, sort of semi-medieval dialogue. In this, it's, you know, it's much more modern and recognizable, I guess. Uh, with, uh, as, is, you know, as we've said, a lot more cursing thrown in. I imagine you did do some research as well into um, writing some of those uh, gunfights and, and cannon fights and incorporating some of that modern weapons technology as well? I did. Uh, more with the heavy guns, but also you know the small arms, mainly in how they operate and how they work. A certain 
realities you have to deal with when you're writing about guns. And, and I didn't want to, I mean, although it's a fantasy novel and, you know, I'm sure any firearms experts will find something to criticise in it. But I was trying to get it right. So you don't have people doing impossible things with guns, you know, and having endless ammunition that never runs out or stuff like that. So yeah, I did. I put the time in to uh, hopefully get it right. So as far as dealing with uh, Drake's, I guess in some cases they're harvesting them, as we kind of, you'll see in the opening scene. Spoiler, spoiler. That's <laughs> from the beginning. Right of the in the beginning. Um, but uh, some some Drakes are kind of harvested or, in a way, and then uh, are some just killed outright and then harvested posthumously. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Posthumously. Uh, yeah, posthumously. Is it possible to harvest the blood in different ways, or is there only one specific way to, to do it? Well, they have pen-bred stock. They have drakes that have been captured and they've bred them uh, to be harvested. But they, uh, the problem with them is that they are sickly and weak, and their blood is less potent than wild drakes. The problem with capturing them is they're extremely dangerous to large predatory animals, and it's easier to just kill them in the wild and capture them. Now, there's some specialist contractors who will capture them and bring them back when the uh, uh, the bloodlines start to thin. But one of the sort of starting points for the plot is that they're running out of drakes. Uh, they're realizing that the penbred stock they have is eventually going to die out because they can't breed enough of them. And they're killing so many that eventually the drakes are going to go extinct, uh, which leads them to uh, you know, extreme measures. When you were putting this concept for this story together, I mean, because you you wrote The Waking Fire, I think what you finished the manuscript and had it to to the editor like a year and a half ago. It's been quite some time, right? Yeah, I mean, I've since finished <clears throat> book two actually, but so, okay, yeah. so book two is book two is in the can, and then it's a, three books or four books for the series. It's yeah, I was thinking initially it might stretch to four, but the way it looks at the moment, it's going to be three. I've just started outlining uh, book three uh, this week actually. Uh, so yeah, I should be able to keep it to three books. And we were going to kind of delve into your character creation just a, a little bit today, kind of using the Waking Fire as a little bit in, of an example. When you were conceptualizing the Waking Fire, did you kind of start with characters and then build the story? Or did you just kind of start with the concept and then incorporate characters in the story world you were creating? Um, I came up with Clay first. Uh, he was a character which he was going to be the protagonist of a Weird West uh, novel, which had no dragons in it. But I couldn't get the story to gel. I couldn't get the world to work. And I'd come up with the idea of a dragon blood-based uh, magic system independently of that. And it was only when I put the two together that it suddenly clicked. So in this case, it's sort of a tandem thing. I came up with the magic system. I came up with a character and then put them together and it, it took off from there, really. And how would you say, how long does it kind of take you to fully develop a character before you're kind of ready to write that character? Are there certain things that you do? Like, I know there, there are some authors who have like little sheets of a, a complete bio they fill out for kind of each character to flush out those details. What sort of um, steps do you take to kind of flush out your characters before you're ready to kind of put them on the page? Our characters are quite quick for me. They, I don't spend months thinking about them. I spend months, years sometimes, thinking about the story and the world and the plot. Uh, characters, uh, I, I don't pre-plan them. I don't write bios for them or anything. It's all in my head. And sometimes I don't know everything about them before I start writing them. I'll, I'll discover it as, as I'm writing. And they often surprise me. Um, I didn't know, for example, oh, this is a massive spoiler, so I won't say that. Uh, but <laughs> 
<laughs> Clay uh, did a bad thing, uh, which resulted in him getting kicked out of his uncle's house when he was just a boy and he had to fend for himself in the slums. And I didn't know the bad thing that he'd done until uh, I came to write it. And that was about halfway through the book. So as far as your characters, uh, what do you think helps them stand out in the field of epic fantasy when, you know, there's always these huge casts of characters and there's there's so many that people have to keep up with? What do you think makes great characters kind of stand out the most, either from your own your own stories or from other stories you've read? Um, I think people have to be able to empathize with them. Uh, they have to be able to recognize them as people, even though, you know, they might be... Uh, exaggerate exa- examples of real people and live in a you know completely alien world. You have to try and make them relatable in some way. Even the, even evil characters, you know, you have to find some kind of humanity in them. But also, you have to you know I've never been shy in giving them quirks or you know uh, ex- eccentricities of their own and that kind of thing. But I try not to go overboard with it because then you eventually just end up writing stereotypes, you know. Do you feel like the Drakes are are also characters in a way, even though they, I presume they don't talk. Um, <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they talk, I don't know. We uh, find a lot more about out about the Drakes as the story progresses. Not say too much at this stage, because it will spoil a lot, but there's a lot more to them than meets the eye, because humans regard them just as a, you know, a natural resource, mm-hmm. uh, albeit a dangerous one. Uh, and it, as the story progresses, it becomes apparent there's, uh, there's a lot more behind them. I mean, obviously, the big thing we talked about is the blood blood burners, the the ships that burn burn the blood. But are there any other kind of devices that are powered by blood in this world that any of the characters interact with throughout the story? There's a lot more technology, but uh, none of it's powered by blood uh, as yet. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There may be in future. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's you know, other technology. They, they invent the Gatling gun uh, during the course of the story, so look forward to that one. And they invent the uh, propeller-driven warship. Uh, all the ships at the start of the book are, uh, are paddle steamers. Uh, but uh, we discover that the Corventines, spoiler alert, have invented a uh, propeller-driven warship, which gives them a uh, vital advantage in the war that you know, develops. Would you say you use that sort of evolving technology in the past series, or is that kind of a new element that you're incorporating with uh, the Waking Fire and Draconis Memoria? Well, there was, you know, advancing technology in the Raven Shadow series. Uh, They invent an automatic crossbow in that towards the end. But it's certainly much more to the fore in this. Um, And, you know, if we're talking about a mid-19th century world, the 19th century was an amazing time for technology. The speed at which everything progressed uh, it was remarkable. You know, built the foundations of the world we live in now, really. Yeah, I'm curious, as the story world evolves, like what kind of things we're going to see. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see, uh, you know, a gun that shoots blood, like a flamethrower. Flame <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, these kind of things. Well, you weren't, but now you've said that, obviously. <laughs> You can always squeeze it in somewhere. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, this world definitely has a lot of potential for people who are interested in uh, games. Uh, last time we talked to you, uh, I believe you were playing Bloodborne. There's sort of a blood <laughs> theme yeah, it's going. It's a theme going. that seems to keep recurring <laughs> in my work. Uh, yeah. Uh, I finished Bloodborne, which I'm both surprised and deflated about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking back. I'm not sure I actually enjoyed playing Bloodborne. 
<laughs> I'm glad I did it. It was, you know, it's a bit like climbing a mountain. You know, glad when you get to the top, but getting there was a, a hell of a trial. Yeah, since then, what have I played? I've played, uh, oh, Uncharted 4. That was really good and a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. As far as this world, did you, would you see this being developed into anything more? I mean, it's we're still at the very early stages of the series, but the drinking the blood and the, the you know devices powered by blood and the harvesting of blood would make for a really awesome uh, role-playing game or or something along that line. Uh, oh. Is there any thoughts of that at all at this oh. early stage? No one's approached me, so we'll see. <laughs> I'm reliably told by a screenwriter that I know that it's uh, unfilmable now, so there is that. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, when Steve Erickson was on the show, uh, he actually uh, said, you know, we had asked if you think uh, his series was unfilmable, and he said, well, I hope not, because we're trying to get it filmed possibly in the future so i don't think anything's really unfilmable um if you got enough money everything's filmed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need the national debt of africa to film this it? <laughs> it would be in, insanely epic though i can yeah. say that for sure so lizanne lethridge clayton tor creek very interesting character names that you have implemented in this new world what's kind of your approach to making sure that you have the right name for your characters um if they sound right basically I did uh, spend a lot of time writing out a list of names because I knew I'd need them. And I didn't want to. One of the things that holds you up when you're writing fantasy is uh, you need a new character name. You can either leave a blank or sit there for ages dreaming one up. Uh, so this time I, I wrote a list uh, in advance of character names. And uh, I'm actually getting close to the end of it. So. I'm probably going to have to come up with some new ones. It's basically, I wanted the names to have uh, this 19th century feel, so there's a sort of Dickensian influence on the names, uh, and also a sort of Old West, uh, you know, frontier American uh, sound to some of the names, uh, especially amongst the the contractors. Uh, for the Corventines, there's this feature on Scrivener called the Name Generator, <laughs> which uh, you can put in different language origins uh, like Latin or Greek or whatever and it will generate a lot of names for you and for the Corventines uh, Armenian seemed to work best I mean it's not just straight on Armenian names I played, I played around with them a lot but any Armenian people might notice some similarities when they, they come and read the book very interesting well we found one of these uh, what is your steampunk name memes that go around on the internet it's got like the enter your your age and your first letter of your first name and the last letter of your last so me and phil came up with our own steampunk names um so today mine is chief inspector montague rumblestone was what i got mine's pretty shitty uh <laughs> i got sir victor witherbottom <laughs> so if you want to use witherbottom for a future story you know anthony you can go for it <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> we have to come up with Anthony's though, so let's let's get Anthony's going. Chief Inspector Lionel Rumblebottom. Oh, is. that's not bad. <laughs> brothers, Lionel. you're Rumble. Rumblestone, Rumblebottom. You have some no cousins. If I was if I was going to choose my own steampunk name, there's a, uh, <laughs> a fighter pilot from the First World War who shot down a zeppelin over London, uh, and you couldn't make it up. His name was Wolf Stan Tempest. That was his actual name. Wow. <laughs> which is brilliant so yeah i'd rather be him thanks that's some serious street creds shooting down a zeppelin over london yeah. i wouldn't mind that yeah that's uh that's something you can uh you know tell people all the time hey do you know shut up shut up 
that's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> Go well in bars picking up. <laughs> that's my that's my first pickup line. Usually. Yeah, I shot down a zeppelin. <laughs> Did you know that I shot? Down a zeppelin? <laughs> so the Waking Fire uh, cover art is pretty insanely mm-hmm. awesome. Is this cover art at all tied to the story, or is it was it just a concept they came up with? Is this the U.S. or the U.K. cover? Because there's two different covers. The U.K. cover is the big old dragon. Yeah. And there's a character standing in front of the dragon. Is is uh, this a character from the story specifically? Uh, or? Well, the this is what the artist came up with based on the brief that Orbit gave him. Um, okay. I'm very, very happy with the cover, obviously. But, you know, it's... It's more sort of a mood cover. You could say that it's clay in the cover uh, or somebody else, who knows. But it, you know, it sort of relates to the the black getting free at the start of the uh, story. So, yeah, it's not so much a scene from the book, though. It's more sort of capturing the mood, I think. Phil, are you ready to roll one up? Do you want to roll one up with with, uh, Anthony Ryan? Yeah. Waking Fire Edition? We're going to roll one up and blaze it. Waking Fire Edition. (laughs) Let's see how many weed references we can make. Here. Making a hash of this. <laughs> this is oh. perfect, though. Waking fire. Rolling yeah, up. Mm-hmm. pretty much. It works. So our plan was to see if you would like to uh, create a brand new blood blessed character that you may or may not ever use <laughs> for the enjoyment of our listenership. Right. So this is a character that they can roll up for their whatever game that they're playing and use the Waking Fire character as inspiration. So we're going to roll one up. Roll it up. We need something like really bad, like uh, Cheech and Chong sounding music. (laughs) It's a Bob Marley. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to give you some information and then you can just uh, come up with whatever you like. So the first is gender. Mm, Female. Okay, and then age or approximate age. Um, let's go 60. Okay, how about any physical features? Any interesting features at all? Scars, tattoos? Of she, awesome has, she has a wooden leg. <laughs> okay, so I'm presuming she's on one of these uh, uh, maybe she, blood burners, maybe. Maybe she's a pirate. <laughs> pirate, yeah. Okay, uh, weapons, if any. Does she carry any weapons? Blunderbuss. Nice. And how about her hobbies? What does she like to do in her free time when she's not blowing people up with her uh, blunderbuss? She makes models of important buildings with matchsticks. (laughs) (laughs) And what is her Drake blood of choice? Which Drake blood does she enjoy using? Um, Let's go with green. Okay, and then what kind of kick-ass power does that give her, drinking the green blood? She can spin around at incredible speeds on her wooden leg. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she can catch ships on fire, like with the uh, friction. There's spinning action. She can drill holes in in the ground with her wooden leg. Okay, and then lastly, uh, let's have an appropriately uh, awesome name. Uh, Lamelda Sparklefew. <laughs> Lamelda. Okay, I like it. Good. Well, we rolled it up. Yeah, I've got this terrible <laughs> hunger now. <I'm> <laughs> I got some Doritos. 
<laughs> Send them to you. Yeah, your bio says that you're on an endless pursuit for a perfect pint of ale. You're a, an ale enthusiast, I presume. Are there good ales over there in London? You got a lot to choose from? Uh, well, there's a lot of them, yeah. I mean, it's craft beer, I think, is the American term for it. Um, Microbrew. Microbrew, right. yeah. Um, my favorite beer, I mean, I maybe get one pint of it a year because it's very hard to find. Uh, it's called uh, Sarah Hughes Dark Ruby Mild, uh, but you can only ever find it at the occasional beer festival. Uh, it's quite strong now. It's about 6%. So, yeah, you can only have one at a time. What's your usual go-to? I mean, I do vary it. Uh, if you're ever over here, you, you can't really go wrong with this one called uh, London Pride, which is a kind of a standard one, but it's, it's perfectly drinkable. If you could drink one drink blood of choice whenever you'd like and have a cool power, which one would you drink? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> black, I think. It'd be nice. Black, I'd, you know, I wouldn't have to reach for the TV remote or anything. <laughs> <laughs> that would be one use. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So book two is done, working on the outline for book three. Any other fiction plans for you any shorts or anything coming out or is that just uh, the main focus is book three um i finished a new raven shadow novella called the lady of crows uh, a couple of weeks ago don't know when it's going to come out yet uh well, i'm sure i can find a home for it though or if not i'll self-publish it but yeah that'll appear eventually Raven Shadow fans will be glad to know. New new short coming out from that universe. Excellent. Any con appearances coming up for you, Anthony? Or are, you, are you a con attender? Or uh, Just uh, last month, oh, in May actually, I went to the Imaginales Festival in uh, France, which was uh, kind of stressful, but <laughs> it was also <laughs> a lot of fun. Uh, and the food was great. Uh, whether I'll do any more in future, you know, it depends on the invite and whether, whether scheduling works out, that kind of thing. And then uh, Queen of Fire is up for a Gamel Award for this year, too. So best of luck to you on that. Uh, do you keep up with the, the awards, the Hugos and all that fun stuff? Uh, not really. Um, <laughs> I came to the conclusion pretty early on that if I w was going to go through my career worrying about awards, I was in for a lifetime of disappointment. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I'll take the view. If it's nice to get nominated for things, I mean, it's, for the, the Gamel Award, it's the long list that I'm on and pretty much every fantasy novel published in Britain is on the long list. <laughs> I'm not holding out any hope for that. It'd be, yeah, it'd be nice, but I don't get invested in it, and I, I don't do, you know, vote for my book and these award posts or anything like that. Well, we'll give you an award. <laughs> Grim Tidings podcast award for being the best damn Anthony Ryan around. No, I don't know. I'm setting myself up for a fall now. Then. <laughs> Found to be another Anthony Ryan eventually. You're on the long list, Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> we put you Thank on the you long see. list for the an best yeah, Anthony Ryan. It's an open vote, so we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> no promises. Uh, we'll put you on the short list. <laughs> All right, Anthony Ryan. Uh, contact information for our listeners who are going to go on Amazon right now and purchase The Waking Fire, of course. That's a given. But uh, if they want to find out more from you, where can they check you out online, sir? Uh, my site is at uh, anthonyryan.net, or they can follow me on Twitter at writeranthony. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, best of luck with the release of The Waking Fire. Many good things uh, coming readers' way for sure. That short story from the Raven Shadow trilogy coming out. So lots of cool stuff. Anthony, thank you again for dropping by the Grim Tidings podcast. It was great to have you back on the show today. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. 
download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Excellent. Managed not to cock it up this time. <laughs> That's why you're on the shortlist, Anthony. Yeah, you know. <laughs> hand those out to anybody, you know. Well, I can tell you, I know people on the committee, and you have a good shot. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you.